let's be real. Lawsuits are no fun, but with Paulson and Nace, at least they are a little easier. With two DC-born partners, Paulson and Nace will fight for you the way only a Washingtonian could. Paulson and Nace handles medical malpractice, wrongful death, and other complex injury cases involving negligence. So if you have been hurt or lost a loved one because of someone else's mistake or negligence, call Paulson and Nace for a no-obligation consultation. Visit www.paulsonandnace.com or call 202-463-1999. Today on CityCast DC, we are talking about a NIMBY fight in the suburbs pitting mental health advocates against disability rights activists. Contributor Dan Reed is here to chat about that. Plus, Washingtonian's Jessica Sidman joins us with a shocking report that she's done about race and dining in the city. Jess is also going to stick around and walk us through her list of fall restaurant openings that she is excited about. Today is Friday, September 15th. I'm Michael Schaefer. Here's what DC is talking about. Hey, Dan. How's it going? Good. Hey, Jess. Hey, how are you? I'm doing okay. So, Dan Reed, uh, you usually talk about, or we usually talk uh, together about DC or like Silver Spring, where you live, but you've got a, a story that you are fascinated with that's been in the news that takes place in Loudoun County. What's the deal? Yeah, so uh, there's this big uh, controversy going on in Loudoun County for the past couple of years, and it's about a company that provides basically mental health therapy to young people in a residential setting. Uh, They wanted to buy some land in an area south of Leesburg called Gleedsville, which is a fun thing to say. (laughs) And neighbors, particularly, you know, those who own big farms in the area, are finding it on the basis that they're worried it will disrupt their neighborhood, that the young adults staying here are going to run amok in their community. And also that this is a, what they would describe as like a big corporate rehab company coming into their neighborhood. What actually is happening is, and what the controversy sort of like sits around, is this company, which is called Newport Healthcare, bought three houses on a piece of land. And the way that the county zoning laws work, you are not allowed to have you know, so many people in one place. Like, I can have a certain size of uh, group home care facility. There are three houses on the property. And so Newport's argument is each house is a separate thing. And thus, with only eight people in the house, it's like sits below the threshold that is like still allowable. Uh, it sounds like dry and like a weird technicality, but uh, as an urban planner, these these are the things on which planning law is based, right? Also next door is there's another sort of institutional facility. I mean, it's not officially mm-hmm. that, but we explain that. Yeah, there's a, the next door to this site is a farm where young adults with developmental and intellectual facilities work mm-hmm. on the land. And, you know, part of the concern from this neighbor is that people from this group house facility would come over and, I guess, disrupt the farm activities or potentially, like, get into interactions with the people working on the farm. And things like the farm itself, people may have perceptions about what goes on there and who works there, right? So 
I, I think the owner of that farm is also saying that this isn't about otherizing people, right? Like it's not about stigmatizing people, but rather, you know, making sure that he can go about his activities without being disturbed. Since I assume most civilians are not versed in like the, the details of whether it constitutes one entity or three, mm-hmm. what's their real grip? Uh, is it like traffic? Is it safety? Is it both? Neither? There, there seems to be a safety argument like that allowing young people with mental health issues into this community will endanger other residents. Uh, they're worried about traffic from the property. We're, they're worried about their property values being diminished. Th- these aren't unusual arguments. You know, there's a, a term people like to use in the planning world called uh, LULUs, locally undesirable land uses. And a lot of the arguments that people are making here in Loudoun County are very similar as to ones that have gone on in D.C. this past summer over plans to buy a dorm at George Washington University and turn it into housing for homeless families, right? Your young people will run amok. There will be crime. It'll hurt our property values. When... Ultimately, this is about giving people in need a place to stay uh, that is safe and secure and comfortable, which are things that most people would like from a place where they live. Well, I, I don't know. Let me give you the counter argument. You liken <laughs> it to people fighting against a, a facility for homeless people. People who are homeless have no crime, no affliction other than being too poor to afford a house. Maybe they, they often also have other things, just as lots of other people often have other things going on. In the case of these facilities, there's been a determination that they need to segregate them off from their regular lives and be in a special facility. And I don't know why. There's a lot of reasons why. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's antisocial behavior towards strangers. Sometimes it's like harm to self. Who knows? But I don't think, you know, if it's next door to you, like people are completely in the wrong of saying like, hey, this is a, a special use and I didn't sign up for it. No, I, I empathize with that. And as I, as someone who lives next door to a food pantry, uh, which does a lot of good for the community, but like can create external effects, right? Namely, trash, noise, people around. Uh, this is part of the challenge, right? Of, of being in community with other people is that things have to go somewhere. Uh, and part of the reason why this company is in Loudoun County is because they had previously tried to open in McLean, another wealthy but much closer in suburb, and they were basically run out of town, right? So part of the rationale was if we're going to go out here to where there are farms, it'll be far enough that people won't be as worried about our presence. And it turns out that wasn't the case. What do you think ought to happen? I mean, the thing is operating, and I, I do tend to have empathy for the people who need services. And I, I'd like to think that this is the kind of sort of spread out situation where it, the, the externalities of it might be a little bit less. I think at a certain point, it comes down to making sure that there's an agreement with neighbors and the county about how these things operate and that they're held to, they're held accountable for it. Ultimately, I think that that's a solution, right? Like, if you're going to be allowed to operate here, you should do whatever you can to be a good neighbor. Wait, is there evidence that they're not? Residents uh, claimed they saw a young person who was living at one of these residential facilities running away from it, like up the street and into another property. Um, that that seems to be the kind of thing that people will be pointing to as a concern, right? Because they don't know what people might do when they leave the property. So they saw a guy. They, they saw a young woman. running from one place to another. Running from one place to another. Is that a crime in Loudoun County? No. So how much of this is just like... There's a, like always stories in uh, local media about these sort of these suburbs that are dealing uncomfortably with 
suddenly becoming a place where many more people live. And therefore, there are people who require mental health services. There are people who require, you know, oil changes. There are people who require all <laughs> kinds of things that didn't used to be there. And there is a system that is sort of unwieldy for deciding what goes where. And it is the kind of system, because it happens in public, is often characterized by accusation and demonization and so on. Is there a better way of doing this? Like, or is this just sort of what we are consigned to deal with in our democracy? This is how American land use is set up, right? A lot of these decisions happen site by site. They happen in public. We have a system of zoning that says basically one use can only happen here and one use can only happen here. So uh, I think short of throwing it out and starting all over, it's hard to necessarily change things like this or to avoid it, right? You know, one answer is to give people less public input, which naturally people are going to be concerned about, right? It's one thing, I think, to say that maybe there should be less, maybe less opportunities for the public to stop like an apartment building from being built. But when you get into more, I guess you could say more complicated activities that like might serve the public or might serve specific segments of the public or might have people coming and going in a way that's different than like a residential building or an office or something, it may demand a little bit more scrutiny. David, thanks for chatting with me. So like you and I both have cars in the DC metro area and sometimes they're great, but sometimes they can be a hassle. And I heard you had car issues, man. Yes, my car, like me, is old and falling apart. <laughs> and so I wanted to get it fixed. But one of the truly unpleasant tasks I find in the world is getting your car fixed because you have to take it usually somewhere extremely distant, extremely inconvenient, arrange some alternate form of transportation. And so I heard about Rota, Rota.com, and I went on the Rota.com website and they will come and pick your car up, take it from you, and then do the work and bring it back to you. And so I made an appointment on Roto, which was easy as pie, beautiful user interface um, for the work that I wanted done. The valet showed up at around 10 o'clock at my house as exactly on time, very easy, just handed him my keys. He drove off with my car. About an hour later, April called me. She said, here are some things that we found with your car in addition to what you want to do. She sent me videos that Michael- Wait, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a car nerd, so I like want to know the nitty gritty of what's happening because I, I don't know stuff. A million percent. They sent me this video. There was a particular belt that was had broken and they sent me a video of it and they sent me a list of sort of here are the things that were recommended. Here are the things that seemed urgent to fix and I could choose what I wanted to fix and sent that back to them, which took me like three minutes. Michael, the technician, fixed it. They then texted me and said, oh, your car's on the way back. My car was back in front of my house at 2.30. I'd given it to them at 10. It was back in front of my house that afternoon. Also, note, the valet did a much better job parking in front of my house than I do. <laughs> Don't they always? So much closer to the curb. And it was an incredibly pleasant, super easy experience. And they were very trustworthy. They were clear about what they were going to fix. And it was incredibly convenient. Yeah. So this like seems like a dream. Uh, I have used them before, but it's been a bit. Would you use them again for something like this? I would like use this? Rhoda again in a second. I would use Rhoda. And they have a discount for us too, for CityCast listeners. So if you nice. go to Rhoda.com, they have the discount code CityCast20 and you get 20% off. Sweet. Uh, plots. David, thank you so much for talking with me. Again, CityCast listeners, you get 20% off off any Rhoda service up to $100 using the code CityCast20. 
So go to Rhoda.com. That's R-O-D-A.com. Book your appointment. When was the last time you went to the theater? Well, we have a new show for you to check out. The Gala Theater in Columbia Heights is showing the political musical comedy Museum in the Closet, Avida's Return, which follows Argentine icon Eva Perón to the afterlife as her preserved corpse ignites political scandals, clandestine affairs, and mysterious murders. The show is full of samba, reggae, and tango that will have you tapping your feet nonstop. The show is in Spanish with English surtitles and will run from May 9th through June 9th. Get your tickets now at galatheater.org or call 202-234-7174. So meanwhile, in town, Jessica Sidman, you are one of the great food writers for Washingtonian. And as I know personally, a really amazing reporter, you had a pretty hot story about uh, segregation and race and the Gordon Ramsay restaurant, uh, The Wharf. What can you, can you give us the quick and dirty? Yeah, about that? absolutely. So um, for anyone who hadn't heard, you know, celebrity chef Gordon Ramsay opened this splashy new restaurant at the wharf hills kitchen back in january it was a big deal the mayor was at the ribbon cutting etc nine months later there's trouble 11 employees walk out on labor day with accusations of a hostile and racist work environment and there are two big allegations here the first was, they say, one of the managers was creating kind of this toxic environment. And they say, you know, he'd make belittling comments and could be retaliatory. And that he would have these outbursts. They claim, you know, that he punched a wall and more recently threw a ladder. And they didn't want to work with him anymore. So they walked out and said, we're not coming in until, you know, he's sent home. In the middle of this, other allegations had previously surfaced, started boiling to the surface again, namely that one of the lead hosts of the restaurant had been racially segregating diners. So if you've ever watched Gordon Ramsay's show, there's a red team and a blue team, and the dining room kind of plays off of that color split. There's a red side and there's a blue side. The blue side, according to staff, is considered the better side because it has the waterfront views. And so that's where they put the VIP diners. And according to six current and former employees that I spoke with, this host would essentially seat mostly black diners on the red side with the lesser views, which she allegedly called the quote unquote ghetto side and mostly white diners on the blue side. Okay, did they tell you that this was like ordered from above or that this person was directing other people to do the same or was this just one person's thing? So the sources I talked to point to this one lead host, but all of these allegations and the segregation came to light internally in August and the management of the restaurant said, okay, we're going to do an investigation and they interviewed employees and employees wrote written statements. But it seems the outcome of that was that, according to my sources, 
this host was just put on different duties, but she was still a host. So just to get this straight, a number of people see a pattern of like pretty horrific. I mean, like just as a civilian coming to this, a boss who's kind of a dick, it seems like a pretty much a staple of the restaurant world, particularly the Gordon Ramsay uh, world, if you've watched his show. But this other thing, a host who is engaging in illegal racial discrimination against clientele, that's less publicized. Maybe it is common too. But so these people complain about this pattern. They're told to deliver written reports. The written reports are delivered and the person they're talking about faces not especially onerous consequence. Right. I will say the restaurant, when I reached out to them, they say they're still investigating this matter and that a source told me that you know they're reviewing video footage and so far they hadn't seen this discrimination. But six people who all say it was very blatant and many of them were submitted written reports. All this would have stayed quiet if it hadn't been that these folks walked out over abusive, sort of more general and less, you know, racialized abusive treatment by their boss. Right, right. And and then I should say, they said, you know, we don't want to work in the restaurant with this particular manager. At this point, the corporate HR gets involved and tells them, you're not handling this matter, your complaints in the correct way. You are all suspended. Don't come back to the restaurant while we investigate this matter. Wait, wait so, sorry. The, the people who were suspended were the ones who complained about yes. this? The employees who walked out with Complaints of this racist, hostile environment are the ones who were suspended. And it was only after I reached out to the Ramsey group and started reporting the story that, you know, they received another email saying, actually, you are allowed to come back to work as we continue our investigation. So big picture, how common is this in in D.C. restaurants? It seems like it's the the dirty secret of, of the dining world. Yeah, you know, that's a very interesting question. And after the story was published, it was interesting to see. I mean, first of all, there were a number of diners on social media who said, oh, I was there and I said something to my husband, friend, like, why is it all Black people on this side? And I didn't think that much of it, but now I'm second guessing the whole thing. So there are clearly people eating at the restaurant who noticed um, but the bigger thing that really stood out to me was how many people said, you know what, this is nothing new. This happens at a lot of restaurants. And, you know, I think that will certainly be a topic of future reporting. If you're a Black person in D.C. or really anywhere, you, you know, this probably is not the first time you've heard about someone of color, you know, getting a lesser table. Maybe it's not quite the same as what happened here, but... It's not an anomaly. Speaking of personal experience, you know, growing up, my family would eat at Cracker Barrel, you know, like the chain of like southerny restaurants. And basically my parents started boycotting it in half for years and years because a similar story came out. They would be seating black patrons closer to the kitchen and away from everyone else. So like this doesn't feel surprising. It's a bummer to see it at such a high end, like splashy, publicly visible restaurant. It makes you want to go in and ask for a seat by the window and see what happens. <laughs> well, what do you think would have happened, Jessica, if your reporting had been about like some you know singular place that was not part of a 
chain, not connected to like a national brand and a TV f- person. All these, you know, Gordon Ramsay and his company have a great, great, yeah. great deal to loot. That like, if, you know, some schmo opened their own restaurant, they would not necessarily have. There's no like broader economy with an individual person. Do you think the reaction would have been different if you had called that kind of place versus if you had a place that had like a corporate HR apparatus? I mean, I would like to believe that if this happened anywhere, there would be outrage. But, you know, certainly I think there's a lot of attention when you have a celebrity chef involved. Just a lot of people are going to, you know, click on that story. But it, it, it should be outrageous no matter where it happens. What do you do as a reporter and as a a person who gives people tips and, and writes up recommendations for where to go. How do you factor in this question of like, uh, are these people, you know, bad people? Are they creating an unjust environment for their staff or an unwelcome experience for part, for members of our community? How do you factor that into like whether you recommend a place or what you write about a place? Do you, as you compile lists and so on, do you factor that in? Do you ask that question just in, in general? Ugh. Schaefer, this is a hot topic. I'm sure we've had many conversations about this in the past. Uh, It became a a very big topic, obviously, during Me Too, when you had all these big names, chefs and restaurateurs accused of of sexual harassment or sexual assault. And do you review the restaurant? Do Do you put them on lists? And there have been different camps on this. Some people who say there are so many other people who make up the restaurant, who are, who will, you know, are good actors and they shouldn't be punished for one person. And you can write about a place and mention the bad aspects, but still say good things about the food. There's another camp that says, you know, there are so many great restaurants out here in general, like why give them any limelight at all, you know, focus on places that, you know, are doing good things. It, it is also tricky because as a reporter and, and sometimes critic, you know, we, we don't know everything and we can't, it's hard to investigate every single restaurant that we might put on a best list to see how they treat their staff. Well, I think you can probably separate the questions. There's, you were right about the, how you treat your staff. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the nature of the restaurant industry is there's just a lot of bad stuff happening to a lot of employees. But the question of what happens to the patrons is different. I mean, if you say right. 25% of the customers are discriminated against and shunted into a, a side room, you wouldn't be okay if it was like, well, only 25% of the customers got salmonella. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure, sure. They're supposedly investigating this matter. So we haven't really seen, you know, like, what are, what, what are they doing to fix this, right? So far, it's been kind of crickets. I haven't heard much. That does not sound super promising to me. But I would say right now, if someone's asking me for a recommendation or for a restaurant, I'm not going to recommend Hell's Kitchen. Um, you know, also, we reviewed it um, previously. And my colleague, Ann Limpert, basically said, hey, Gordon Ramsay, like, you need to go in and fix your own kitchen because <laughs> it needs help. There's also that part of it. <laughs> so speaking of, of food and excellence, you and Anne put together a list of, I think, 27 restaurant openings this fall that you are yes. excited about. Tell us what we, too, should be excited about. Okay, yes. I, I think I'll mention two that have opened already so people can start checking them out and three that are coming soon. I would say the number one hot restaurant table to get right now is El Presidente in the Union Market area. This is a new modern Mexican restaurant from 
prolific restaurateur, Stephen Starr, who's the owner of Le Diplomat, very popular French restaurant you may have heard of. Uh, this is an ode to Mexico City, and it has very colorful theatrical decor. I'd recommend you know checking out some photos. It looks very cool. Uh, another place that has just opened that I've been looking forward to for a long time is called The Square, which is a food hall. Yes, another food hall. So many food halls. They keep coming. This one is a little bit more on the high end. And it's from two alumni of Jose Andres's Think Food Group, including one who was the chef at mini bar once upon a time and another guy who basically, you know, helped create union market and bring in a lot of the vendors there. Uh, so they've got a little bit of everything. They're hoping to kind of revitalize that downtown area where nobody's going because everybody's working remotely. So we'll see how that goes for them. But a few of the concepts have opened so far and there are more that will be coming this fall and winter. And uh, then what is to come? So another one that should be opening shortly that I'm also very excited about is called Haraya on H Street. And this one is a kind of a, a modern Filipino restaurant from a chef who had previously worked at Bad Saint and Hoagie Boy, which is kind of a, a more casual Filipino joint that has since closed. And um, he's going to be putting kind of a modern spin on some family recipes. I think there's going to be a tasting menu as well. That's one to watch. Another one that I am very intrigued by is Mineta Tavern, uh, which uh, is from restaurateur Keith McNally, who's kind of a Instagram provocateur. Uh, he has other restaurants in New York that are very popular, Balazar and Pastis, which is also coming to the DC area. But Mineta Tavern is, it's, you know, described as like a Parisian steakhouse meets classic New York City tavern. And the location here is going to have this semi-private lounge that's called the Lucy Mercer Room which is named after FDR's mistress. What does semi-private mean? I, well, I guess TBD on that. I don't know exactly, but I imagine like that it'll be like rented out a lot, but hopefully also open to the public. One other one that I'm very excited about is on the more casual end, probably. Uh, it's called Your Only Friend. And this is from the longtime beverage director of Columbia Room which was the acclaimed cocktail bar that closed in Blackton Alley. He's known for very inventive cocktails. And during the pandemic, he started this sandwich pop-up called Your Only Friend. And just, you know, really good, good stuff. One of my favorites is he has like a mortadella and mozzarella Italian sub that I think is just delicious. And he's going to be doing some fun drinks, kind of deli-influenced, like a celery gimlet or a rye bread old-fashioned. Wait, Dan, what on Jess's list is most appealing to you? I am pretty excited about San Pancho in Tacoma Park. Uh, it's from the people who own uh, Cielo Rojo. In fact, it's the space that Cielo Rojo used to be in. They're moving up the street. 
And I'm super excited to see what they will do both with their food and also like to reinvent that space. Oh, Sidman, when you guys review this, will you take Dan Reed with you? <gasps> oh, yeah. If you want to come with Absolutely, Dan. Dope. <laughs> Jessica, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Dan, always awesome to talk to you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And that is all for today here on CityCast DC. Our lead producer is Priyanka Tilve. Our producer is Julia Karen. Our newsletter writer is Kayla Cote-Stemmerman. Our production assistant is Susanna Brown. And our hosts are Bridget Todd and me, Michael Schaefer from Politico. Music is by Alex Roldan. If you enjoyed the show, tell someone who loves trying new restaurants. We'll be back Monday morning with more news from around the city. Bye. If you enjoyed the show. Oh, you guys with this thing. If you enjoyed this show, please give us a way to end it.